Hello, world singers. My name is Tyler. And my name is Brooke. And this is Cosmere Conversations. The reread has begun. We are in 2020. We are in the year of Stormlight 4. We are rocking it. And we have begun the reread with Mistborn Arrow 1. So far, what we are thinking is we're going to need at least a part one and part two. These are long books. (laughs) They're long books. And then in our private life we have basically had four and a half pods of just conversations going on in the background of our lives that's true (laughs) we filled up hours and hours not on mic about these books and so there was a day back in the early periods where we thought we were going to do all the Mistborn era one books in one episode that was folly yeah that that was definitely folly that's a great word for it it was it was not gonna happen it was, it was an imagination and i also just wanted to reiterate that i because i've had a couple comments on facebook remember you totally don't have to be 100 percent following along with our specific reread these pods will be here for you whenever you decide to reread Mistborn Era 1. Whenever maybe you're reading it right now, you're not quite done yet. This is pretty open. So read your own read and jump in with us whenever you want to. Yeah, I love that idea. And that's really the purpose of this whole reread done right. If we if we do our job correctly, uh, then you should be able to hop in and listen to these episodes at any point, any time that you do a Mistborn reread and then stay Maybe with us. Maybe you don't even have enough time for a reread before Stormlight this year and you're just going to listen to these pods as a quick refresh. That's totally cool too. Exactly. We did the reading for you. <laughs> <laughs> as always though, hashtag all spoilers all the time. We know this. We're moving through Mistborn now, but we are talking about every bit of the Cosmere and Words of Brandon possible. So the whole goal is to get through all of the major Cosmere novels before Stormlight 4 releases later this year. November 17th, if I'm not mistaken. Don't be mistaken, uh, because the fans are relying. It's (laughs) 11 months to go, basically, but uh, they're counting on you to get that correct. Through this reread, we are also hoping to maybe pick up on any Cosmere significant moments that we may have missed previously, and also just to like bring some fresh eyes, fresh perspective to these stories. For me personally, it's been quite a while since I've reread Mistborn Era 1. I think, I don't think I've read it since before like Alloy of Law came out. It's been a while. Many years at this point. Yeah. Because didn't you say that Alloy of Law 10-year anniversary is coming up? Yeah. Well, kind of coming up. It's in a few years, but yeah, relatively. <laughs> okay. So not not coming up at all. Sorry to panic everyone. So let's begin with Mistborn, Era 1, Book 1, The Final Empire, 
a lot of people's introduction to the Cosmere or Brandon Sanderson's work in general. I want to know your thoughts, Brooke. What's your like first biggest thought or biggest takeaway? You know, if we just watched this as a movie in the theaters, uh, we come out of the theaters and we immediately have the that quick conversation. What would you be saying about the Final Empire? Well, as I said a moment ago, this is the first time I've read Mistborn Era One in a very long time, and I certainly found that my experience reading it this time was really different from either what I was remembering of my first read or two or like the actual experience of those first couple of reads. And I found this experience to be much more enjoyable than I was remembering. I think partially it helped that I am already familiar with the magic system and the world because something that was impressed upon me as I began reading this book is that you get a lot thrown at you very quickly. A very complex magic system. You get tossed into this world that is really unlike anything that I had seen previously in fantasy or fiction books with characters and you're like trying to get your bearing and follow the plot. And so this time having some kind of groundwork, I found it much easier to grasp the different metals and the magic system and to like understand what is happening with the magic system. The investiture on this planet I have always found to be like the hardest one to just like understand in my brain because there's so many different metals that like do different things and categorizations and the first couple times I read this book I just found it really difficult to like wrap my brain around these complex fighting sequences and try to keep track of like who's burning what metal and which metal does what. It is a very bold ask of Brandon to expect the reader to be able to hold all of these different rules that he's basically setting up for the way that magic works. And he sets it up all pretty quickly. Like you're introduced to Mistborn or the idea that someone can burn at minimum, the eight basic metals pretty early with Kelsier and his introduction to that practice uh, as he's teaching Vin. It's just very complex to... And then the whole... I think one of the things that Brandon is greatest at is those action scenes and those combat scenes. But to be doing that on top of the introduction of this magic system where... Each metal only does a specific thing at a specific time and in a specific way. Like you can't, for example, at least in the first book, have a lot of great control over things like pushing and pulling steel and iron. Um, it's kind of just an all or so you go flying up into the air if you well, do a push against, uh, you know, weighted objects. I mean, Vin, Vin talks about different kinds of control within that. But sort of to your point, I think that part of the thing that makes it more complicated is that not only are we immediately thrown in with two Mistborn, but we're thrown in with two Mistborn who happen to be exceptionally good at what they do. So you're not even following characters who are kind of like starting from the beginning and like slowly learning their way up. You're like with Ben who's just like, oh, okay, cool. I got it. 
<laughs> yeah, there's not even like a established school. You know, that became very popular after Harry Potter, but it was a concept even before we're like, okay, we're going to go to a place and follow characters kind of progress in a, you learn this small spell and yeah. then you graduate to slightly bigger spell. But like the basic things that Vin learns early on are the same concepts that are at play in book three or in the next era of Mistborn. Like it's all here up front and in our face right at the beginning basically and so that's a that's a big ask of brandon and it is something that he obviously does very well uh but it's it's a huge aspect of this book and story to just feel it so much all at once right at the beginning and you know depending on who you are and what your reading style is it's kind of a good thing because it does mean that you can return to this series this is now my third reread um you know the first one was just like reading the story the second one was like wait a second what is this cosmere thing <laughs> looking for all of those like hidden you know things that i had missed the first time because these books do move so quickly and then now on the third reread i feel like i'm able to see a lot more and appreciate a lot more and everything that we've just been talking about i think contributed to my feeling this reread of almost a reverse of my feeling the first couple times I read it, which is the first time I was like, love the characters, love the plot, action was way too confusing and too much. This time when I read it, I was like, action is super cool, really incredible, such great writing, great images are painted through words of these conflicts that happen, uh, and like characters, meh. I don't know. Maybe it could use some work. Yeah, we'll talk about that uh, a little bit more. I think my biggest positive takeaway, the thing that just kind of I was left with at the end of this book is how it stands alone so well. It is obviously the first in not just a trilogy, but the first in many trilogies going forward. Uh, but it operates as a standalone book. We were just listening to Brandon's State of the Sanderson slash AMA that he was doing on Facebook Live. Yeah, not YouTube, I was about to say. That can give you a timeline of when we are recording. However, he was saying one of the things that he wanted to accomplish with this book was to do everything in a story in one book, to have it um, be a single kind of story a lot of people have noted his um, inspiration from like the heist genre of both movies and books i always call it oceans 11 plus some magic it's so great and it has this kind of wonderful arc as a single book and i'm just always impressed by that uh it really does make sense to you know recommend this book or act as a great starting book for many people uh, because of that fact. Another big takeaway for me this read, it was how dark these books yeah. really are. I don't, for some reason, that just wasn't quite impressed upon me the first time 
I read them. And this time as I was reading through, like there is a lot that is really gruesome. I mean, it starts on like a slave plantation, a, a ska plantation with murder and like burning down. And then you just get darker and darker from there. I mean, what were some of the things that kind of jumped out to you uh, as like particularly gruesome? Uh, Cayman's death. Harsh. At the hands of the, I think, Inquisitors. Yeah. Really gruesome. And just like the whole scene leading up to it as they're like walking through the slums, like the slums of the slums. And they describe like the smell. And there's just this overwhelming sense of like foreboding and darkness. And just like the whole thing was so intense. I feel like I tend to think of this uh, trilogy, you know, as the um, young adult version and so in my brain for some reason it feels lighter yeah Yeah. and so this reread kind of reminded me like no this is a really dense difficult scary world and then there's like that one little ska like messenger boy sort of that uh vin sees on her way out to a carriage after a ball and the guards just immediately are like what are you doing here and they just slit his throat yeah, no questions asked. Like yeah. it's it's not even a consideration really about like what to do. Yeah, it is just like shocking and terrible. And then just the fact that the weapons that like Mistborn and coin shots and stuff use are coins, and the number of times you read about coins just being blasted through people's bodies. Yeah. Obviously, that's like very similar to bullets, but for some reason, I just found it so disturbing. Well, and I think when you give it that extra imagination or you focus on it a little bit, uh, I think you could make a very strong argument that it's not like bullets. Like, it's significantly worse. We're imagining something like a quarter, right? Most bullets, if you look at like the head where there's going to be impact, a, it's meant to be aerodynamic, but it also like pierces a target, including like a person. And we have generally outlawed or don't like using in warfare situations things that splinter or um, expand and purposefully like create extra damage in a human body. It's in warfare, obviously, bad things happen. Not saying like war is pretty, but there are at least these like kind of rules that we play by and a coin going into a person is just going to be discovered. It's just going to rip it all open. The coin's going to blow apart. It's, and they're often describing that in this story. And it's just like, and then a bunch of viscera and blood came bursting out the back. It's just like, wow. Yeah. There's a lot of viscera actually, particularly when we get to book two. Um, so anyway, we don't necessarily need to keep talking about that on the pod, but that was one of my takeaways. Yeah. When just things that we Keeping thought it about. light exactly. here on Cosmere Conversations. We go where the stories go. <laughs> but on that note, kind of what's uh, the opposite perspective? What's something that like, you know, this is, a, this is a little bit of a maybe first draft feel or I didn't like it as much or I outright hated it uh, if any things fall in that line but just kind of what's the more negative things that you're picking out right here at the beginning yeah well as i said previously i think some of the like relationships or character continuity and growth 
felt a little off to me during this read. I felt like there was some inconsistency in Vin's personality and her character continuity. Specifically, like, sometimes she seems very uncertain. And then, you know, she's like been a Scott all her life, doesn't know too much about the nobility, et cetera, et cetera. And sure, her brother has sort of coached her on like how to appear like a noble woman, but she has never done anything like she is now doing completely undercover as a noble woman at these balls. And she kind of immediately, although she's saying like, I feel so insecure, the things that she is like doing and saying come across like very confident and she just automatically like knows the exact perfect way to flip phrase things like a noble woman and like well and she convinces all the noble people for the most part i mean clearly like ellen is fully bought in on her portrayal many other people buy the like slight duck of the head like oh i'm from the country or you know i'm a noble woman but from far away um and like yeah so she convinces everyone and i I just i found it a little hard to believe that she would be such a effortless and charismatic actor it just didn't like fit with her life experience or personality to me and then we didn't really get to like watch her grow into that role I think that for me, one of the things looking back on this and also comparing it to other works that Brandon has done, uh, if I don't know if that's fair or not, but that's what I'm doing. And I think that what was clear most about The Final Empire specifically is there are not a lot of female characters there's basically none. Yeah. I There's mean, Vin. And like, that's it. And Vin <laughs> is at least a little bit kind of a, yeah, a tomboy. She's, she's one of the guys. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, she's not a super feminine female, uh, and, but clearly she is meant to balance out and be a difference of opinion and perspective to a lot of the situations. But it just didn't necessarily make perfect sense to me in a world where alamancers are so rare, um, especially than alamancers among the ska. Even in later books, like we find out that alamancy among the noble class is pretty rare. Right. So it's even extra rare in a situation where like Kelsier could recruit you, where every single one of the people that he ended up choosing or was, you know, a good enough thief all of them were male. It just didn't necessarily line up. I was like, where are the female alamancers? Because if they exist, which we know they do, you have to use them. Like, yeah, they can't well, not be powerful if you have a female pure yeah. arm. Like, she's going to get work. Like, she's going to be uh, super valuable to all the ska. And so, like, sure, Ham, I love. He's a great pewter arm, great character, totally fantastic but would a female have been totally different in that situation um i don't know like could a female ham work maybe uh but certainly a female on the crew would make sense in this world and the idea that it was just all male and vin is kind of uh, a tomboy or kind of a less feminine female character just there's not a lot of femininity in this book and it feels a little bit like a young 
teenage boys fantasy (laughs) a little bit of just like i'm gonna go hang out with all the cool guys and we're gonna all go on an adventure together and it's gonna be great we become best friends like legolas and gimli uh and that's kind of just like played out a little bit yeah it does seem to indicate um maybe a younger or a less experienced writer um you know they always say write what you know and it does kind of smack of like the author wasn't completely comfortable writing women and so just kind of stayed away from any of those situations because even like the people that Vin interacts with at balls are pretty much all men. He only talks about the men that she dances with and Ellen. She occasionally interacts with two other women. But they like hate her. Yeah, those are super, super short scenes. And there's references of her going to like other parties and going to like female gatherings, but we never see them on screen. They're just like mentioned as like they're there, but I don't really know how to write that. So moving on. (laughs) Let's dive a little bit deeper now and try to get our five biggest takeaways uh, from the book or our kind of top five moments anything that you got and then you just kind of were stuck with or sticking with you after reading what do you think were some of the most important things from this first Mistborn book uh one thing that i noticed this time around kelsier has some similarities to shallan in the way that he is portrayed you know the fact that he like insists on smiling and laughing even when terrible things are happening and they're doing really difficult things he is he like takes it upon himself to be this beacon of light and beacon of hope and even the crew around him his closest friends are kind of like dude come on like how how can you smile how can you just be so cavalier like even they are kind of beaten down and he is already even at the beginning of the story he is this like symbol of hope he makes himself a symbol of hope for the ska and i think that is one of the greatest things that we'll talk about as through lines how either brandon knew all along or certainly was able to naturally take the characteristics that he wrote for these characters and then bring them through because in the other two books characters reference kelsier's forced enthusiasm or forced uh yeah there's some sort of colloquial saying that comes up like the survivor said to smile or the survivor taught us to smile or something like that yeah and basically you know a a fake it till you make it mindset or mentality that he kind of exuded is something that keeps coming up for characters in the future and i think there are a bunch of examples of that but the connection to shallan is really interesting too because that will connect back to the idea of how characters can change in our memory a little bit Uh, because i certainly think that removed from kelsier the we kind of make him harsher than uh he actually was in the first Mistborn and I know you wanted to mention this a little bit more but I just thought that was a great catch is that Kelsier is 
a little bit more sympathetic, especially when we want to play him up. I Uh, feel like we have been really like unfair to him on the pod. So I just wanted to like make a public statement for all of our listeners that I feel bad about (laughs) things that we've said about Kelsier in the past. And like, we've been really hard on him. Like, I think you've called him a psychopath multiple times. Okay, that didn't come from me, though. That (laughs) did come from Brandon saying that he is a little bit sociopathic and would maybe win the all-out brawl across the cosmos. And so, like, he has some hard corners, you know? Like, there is for sure a hardness to Kelsier and just an absolute refusal to lose or to ever be beaten like he has this really vicious streak in him Mm -hmm. but this reread really reminded me about like how much softness and how much care and compassion exists in him and the same like passion that he brings to his hatred and his viciousness he actually has that same passion for his love and his compassion and that love and passion positively like force him to act negatively but just the care and the drive that he has to take care of all of the ska is really moving and and then we see it close up in the way that he takes care of his friends and the way he takes care of Vin and he puts so much effort into giving Vin this life of like love and laughter and showing her you know a softer kinder side of life and he didn't have to you know like he didn't have to take her under his wing he didn't have to show her that kind of kindness he could have just been a teacher and a crew leader and like he has a job to do but he doesn't he takes the time out to have that compassion and i think that is the memory that characters like vin take with them through the next two books is they are dealing so much with Kelsier, the man that they remember, and then the idea of the survivor that begins to... So, I mean, it's, it's a major point for many characters, Spook, Vin, um, Elland, even when he, in the Well of Ascension, becomes a member of the Church of Survivor, but he didn't actually know Kelsier originally, and he's like, just tell me about him. Tell me about the dude. Like, what was he like as just a normal person? And our crew has this real deep love. I think one of the things that either Breeze or Ham says is that he, Kelsier, was annoying in the way that he pushed you or made you part of the crew, uh, but he also made you better for the pushing, Um, that his influence was bringing out something better about each of the members of the crew. I think that is one of the clearest examples of how he is not sociopathic. Yeah. Um, about how he does have emotions and the capacity to feel and recognize that other people are feeling and that his outward mannerism may not match the way that he feels internally. Um, but that the outward mannerism can be important to those around you. And I think that it's a good reminder 
to maybe be a little bit uh, nicer in our memories <laughs> or, or nicer to people in our memories. And yeah, yeah. Just this like reminder to imagine everyone you meet complexly, even these book characters. Our brains are so hardwired to make everything black and white and to put things in categories. And this was just like a great reminder for me that everything is more complicated and needs more space. On the note of more complication and maybe some misunderstanding, there's a lot of confusion about preservation, which we don't get by name in book one, but is obviously a key factor in what is happening and is referenced specifically as the mist or the deepness. And we know that that is preservation's body on Scadrail. His kind of power is tied up in the mist itself. Uh, but it's wildly misunderstood, isn't it? Yeah, I think that was another huge thing that jumped out at me during this reread obviously because I like know what to look for and everything this time around but I think it's pretty amazing the like breadcrumbs that are left by Brandon for us to discover that can be you know completely overlooked and totally just fade into the background of the story perfectly fine you know if you don't want to look for them you don't have to they don't disturb your reading but when you want to look for them they are everywhere and it's so frustrating as a reader then to go back and be like no no you're all wrong <laughs> specifically there is a quote i believe it's from the log book in yeah. one of the epigraphs at the beginnings of chapters and it goes quote the deepness must be destroyed i have seen it and i have felt it this name we give it is too weak a word, I think. Yes, it is deep and unfathomable, but it is also terrible. Many do not realize that it is sentient, but I have sensed its mind such that it is the few times I have confronted it directly. It is a thing of destruction, madness, and corruption. It would destroy this world, not out of spite or out of animosity, but simply because that is what it does, end quote, which is just 100% completely wrong and it's this example of like human perspective versus divine perspective because we know that preservation is like here let me give you the miss please go out in them and like i will give you powers i'm trying to help you and the humans are like ah this is terrible it wants to destroy us yeah and that concept it's almost a description closer to ruin exactly about a thing of just destruction, madness, and corruption, just kind of destroying not out of spite, but just simply because what it does. That's almost a good description of ruin. But the person, the speaker, the Alendi in this case, is feeling that from preservation. And Well, that's the thing, though. Like, I don't think he's f feeling that. I think he is just like, projecting of that yeah, yeah just projecting his human fear and you know it's one of those blind misunderstandings where it's not like one person is necessarily wrong or right it's just a complete uh 
case of two people just talking past each other, right? The divine versus the human, the divine not understanding how to communicate appropriately with the humans and the humans not understanding what the divine is trying to tell them. Yeah, and that's obviously going to play through all of the books. (laughs) Uh, But I love that it's introduced so early and this kind of confusion and unreliable narrator that we come to rely on we we think is so often telling us the truth like oh this is the beginning of a chapter this must be important because it's true yeah and it's like it's a primary source yes this is it's a, a lendy. yeah yeah exactly and so we give so much emphasis to it and so much importance and so much of it is inaccurate and corrupt i at least do believe that a human looking onto preservation, and the only other real example we get of this is in Mistborn Secret History with Kelsier, could be and should be very confused by preservation's quote unquote logic. Yeah, like method yeah. of helping them. Because yeah, it does 100%. not make sense at all. They're like, um, one, you're killing all of our food. Two, when we walk into the mist, we have seizures and like sometimes people die. Yeah. And you got this weird, like, just all aspects of preservation's mindset and even the concept that he introduces about liking the lord ruler because he preserved things and they remain the same over a lot of time if you were a lendi before the lord ruler try imagining they didn't even have an empire there was no one thing it was a bunch of like more tribal societies and the concept that all of that to preservation would probably seem chaotic and like something he didn't like. And then you're getting glimpses of this as you, Alendi, interact with preservation. Uh, It would just be very confusing and overwhelming. And like no one is going to be capable of understanding, but we have to tell ourselves a story or so often we have to tell ourselves a story. To try to make make sense sense. of what's happening. Yes, exactly. And that's what happens in this story. It's what happens in ancient myths and religions and descriptions of the physical universe around us. Like it's what we do in our everyday lives. We just tell ourselves a story and hope that the details match enough that our story (laughs) keeps making sense and we can just like keep going forward. Another thing that I loved at the very, very end of this first book, The Final Empire, there's a great, super clear, concise description of compounding given by Sezed, which I'm sure I've read before, but again, maybe it's just the effect of now having read it three times that it was very clear to me. I think compounding is one of those concepts in the Cosmere that's like a little bit difficult to wrap your head around. So if you're one of those people who is like, wait, I don't understand compounding, uh, check out the very end of The Final Empire and there is a really nice explanation. I am going to go read that right now because I feel like I always need help understanding compounding, especially when we start to get into era two exactly future books in era three and four like you need to understand not just compounding generally but all the little different variations of compounding yeah and twin born yeah exactly (laughs) gonna get a little bit crazy up in the misborn world i think for me one of the last 
interesting aspects that I wanted to remark upon was this introduction of a religion or um, the prophecies of the terrorist people as kind of the driving force to the modern events that were going on. Uh, you very clearly have the story of Elendi that's revealed in little bits and pieces, and then the eventual reveal that those bits and pieces are talking about an individual who is not the Lord Ruler. And it's just a beautiful Brandon psych-out where you think you're learning something. As we said, you think it's important because it's at the beginning of the chapters, and it is important, but it's not important in the way that you first imagined. It doesn't unlock the door that you thought it was going to unlock. Uh, instead, the terrorist religion becomes this through line, and Zazed is but the it's main... But also like a huge mystery. Because nobody knows what it is. And it's... Yeah, and we don't really get that much insight into it, obviously. Like, what actually is the prophecy and like why is there this prophecy about the the shard pool or you know about the the well of ascension and like what did they know did they know about the shards like where did this all come from it seems to me that what we need to do is start talking about the well of ascension uh so let's close <laughs> off our discussion of the final empire uh, by just remarking on kind of what was like the big Cosmere connection. If we went detailed, now let's pull back a little bit and just say what we thought was the biggest big picture connection. Well, obviously Mistborn is one of the biggest places where we get information about the shards and a an exchange that sort of brought this out to me was a conversation between Vin and Sezed. And would you do me a favor and read this with me? I will. Great. Vin snorted. This is no religion we're talking about, Sezed. This is Kelsier. I disagree. He is certainly a religious figure to the Ska. But we knew him, Vin said. He was no prophet or god. He was just a man. So many of them are, I think, Zazid said quietly. And I just thought that was a perfect description of the shards. They seem like these, and they are, these big, powerful entities, but they're also just men, just humans, people who have been saddled with this enormous amount of power. And, of course, spoiler alert, for everyone that you should know we're talking about spoilers, but Zazid becomes that example in himself. He is not a prophet or a mythical-like figure. He's just a man. He has faults. We deal with those faults in both of the next two books. And of course, he is also the hero of ages and eventual harmony holder of both of these shards. It's such a mind-blowing fact about just like dang brandon were you doing this the whole time did you just have this all planned out were you that good yes is the answer it is the answer <laughs> yes final little bit of each breakdown is a hoid sighting 
Uh, did we see Hoyd in Mistborn? The answer is yes. He's in fact named in the Final Empire. Uh, he is a beggar, one of his most used disguises. And Kelsier has an interaction with him where he's just getting some information. It's not a long scene. It's pretty short. Yeah, it's not a um, a scene we would call very important to the greater Cosmere, but he's there. It happened. We noted it. Hoyd sighting confirmed. Um, On the topic of world hoppers, there is also a Brandon confirmed world hopper named Felt. Yes. Who plays a spy in Mistborn. I do not see any clues that this person is a world hopper. I don't know how y'all figured it out, but even on the third reread, I was like, if I didn't know Felt was a world hopper, I would like, there's nothing telling me that he is. I think that is actually the point because it was, I believe, only like a word of Brandon confirmation. Oh, like, tell us a world hopper that, that we, we don't know. know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so then he was saying Felt, uh, who worked yeah. in, I think, Keep Venters. But, Something like yeah. that, yeah. Well, I think that's also like a good example that there is so much going on in these books that is not obvious or like that we're not really supposed to know but that brandon you know just has in his magical head that there are all these other world hoppers i love the idea with brandon specifically i don't know if it's true for every author but for brandon specifically when the man writes something down it's important like that's just the way i take it at this point if he's taking the time to write something even if it seems like a throw away conversation with a beggar i should pay attention <laughs> um and maybe if it's a beggar i should pay more attention yeah <laughs> but that's just kind of where i am I, it comes down to again something that he said in his ask me anything video chat with some of my books you just got to trust me you know way of kings is a big ask uh and it's got a lot of craziness and it's a hard book to read it's very long and you got to trust me and if you give him that trust as an author like he's likely we think going to reward you for that trust and so let's move on to book two the well of ascension well of ascension book number two what was your biggest thought or biggest takeaway biggest thing that immediately after reading you were like blah right after reading the undeniable fact is that the Sanderson Avalanche, the Sando Lanch, Sander Savalanche, the Sander Savalanche, whatever <laughs> way you want to describe it, it is real in book two. It is so apparent, and we'll maybe talk about this when I get to some of the more detailed criticisms, uh, but. The beginning of the book and the end of the book feel like polar opposites in the terms of pacing and the way that the story is conducted, the emotional moments, everything. At the end of the book, I am drained and amazed, and I've gone through that experience that I know other people have gone through when you're exhausted because you just survived yeah. the Sanderson <laughs> what is it again Sanders avalanche the Sanders avalanche <laughs> I honestly 
forget about the first half of this book. Yeah. Basically. And I gotta say, on the third reread, I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> like, you can forget about the first half of this book. And it's fine. Yeah. We'll, we'll save the criticisms for, for just a moment. But I really do think that the second half is crazy. It's one of the best bits of writing and the finale. The climax is amazing. Yeah. It's just incredible. It reminded me most of the second in the Lord of the Rings trilogy that ends with the Battle of Helm's Deep, which is a siege from an enemy army. Like it kind of lines up. It was probably on his mind. Um, but the the book actually ends differently and there's kind of a, a time they mess around with the sequence of events so that the movie has this big climax of the siege of Helm's Deep. And that's kind of like the siege of Luthadel uh, in this book. And it, feels just as amazing you know you get Gandalf riding down at the end and you get Kolos armies that are fighting and Elend and Vin leave and then come back and there's a triumphant return and there's Zazed fighting on the wall oh my gosh it's incredible like there's just so many moments it's cutting back and forth I was losing my mind at the end of this book but it took me a long time to get to the end of this book when it comes to positives, what was your biggest thought, your biggest takeaway? There is great movement um, of like those little breadcrumbs about preservation and ruin and this whole larger Cosmere mythology throughout this book. And to me, that is like the the thing that you get from reading most of it is just like your prize for finishing this is that you get all of these yummy little tidbits that fit into this bigger picture i think the only other thing that i would remark about as just a general takeaway of the whole book and just the whole kind of theme if we were trying to pick that out specifically is just the concept of doubt about how Every character is dealing with doubt in one way yes. or another. Every one of the crew members is in the city, surrounded by multiple armies. They don't think they're going to live. So much doubt. There's doubt from Ham. There's doubt from Clubs. Vin, obviously, is dealing with a bunch of doubt. Who she is, who she loves, what her role is, what Kelsier's role is, what the Lord rulers. But then we even have doubt in the historical record. Those prophecies from the last book, we begin to introduce the concept of like, those were all wrong. Everything you thought you knew was wrong. I don't know if that comes in. In the in second book? book? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have the research of uh, Tindwell and... Zazed. Yeah, but they're not really doubting. They're just discovering. Well, we have the introduction in the last book. I think that the Terrace religion was kind of leading you down the correct path. And then by the end of the second book, you realize that the Terrace religion was the wrong thing to believe in. Uh, it is the opposite because it's been corrupted by 
ruin and the words have been changed by ruin. And so you get this kind of what you thought you knew. It, it's that, that flip of the switch. So I think that theme of doubt is really apparent throughout the entire book. Now let's just go into some of our criticisms or our uh, what we would want an editor to take another look at, that rough draft <laughs> portion of the book, uh, because I have some doubts too. Like, do we need to focus on doubt for so long? Yes, that's exactly what I was just going to say. It is so much a theme of the book that it starts to feel a little bit one note or uh, stale, sort of, where you... It's, I like to compare it to book five of Harry Potter where you're just like, okay, can we like move on now? Can we just stop whining and like get over it and like do something? Yeah. <laughs> well, it, I mean, that's a great kind of parallel too because obviously Harry Potter is seven large books, but five is a little bit of five is the so middle. much of Harry just being like, Yeah, but it's like the middle books um, in terms of setting up the plot. If you go like first two are just setting up the world and it's kind of fun and magical. And then you get three and four are kind of more about Voldemort returning. And then six and seven are about Voldemort climax. Five is just kind of like Voldemort's out there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And the... This book as a middle book has a lot to do. How do we get from the end of book one, this climax? It did everything. Remember, that's what we talked about. It was a book designed to do everything. (laughs) He finished the whole series in one book (laughs) and then there was a sequel. Exactly. And so how do we get from the end of that Ocean's Eleven-esque heist to the world is falling apart and our main characters need to basically fight a god another one yeah it just felt to me like a lot of it could have been cut out or shortened and then maybe this could have been like two books i mean i like the way that the first book ends but like you said you have this first book that's like heist story it's very well um rounded and wrapped up and put together and then the third book is like uh you know, a quest or an epic. There's a lot of things that sort of go together in that book. And then this middle book is a siege and it feels like a siege. It feels like you are sitting in one place waiting Yeah, a lot. And I think that's the hardest thing is that sieges aren't fun. Uh, that's what we've learned, kids. <laughs> <laughs> sieges. Siege, not recommended. Yeah, zero exactly. out of 10. Exactly. Would not do again. Because... There's just a lot of boredom, and I feel like that comes across in some of the character interactions um, or or the characters, the way that they act is just like, well, Vin has to be unsure of herself because as soon as she makes a decision, the book is there over. There will be action. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, at least there will be action. And so like if we're saving up all of the action for that huge series of moments at the end, then literally you have to take a character that is very powerful. We'll not say all powerful, but very powerful. And you need to kind of put her in chains. And that's well, a little boring. And I think too that there's an element of like needing Vin to go through some character growth to go from being, 
you know, this little ska girl to the type of strong, powerful woman who can do all of the things that she does in book three. So I think part of what Sanderson was maybe trying to do with the second book was like, go through that growth. However, as we've talked about in our private conversations, I feel like more of this doubt or like questioning that Vin is going through, these big questions that she's asking, need to be more focused on like her own personal identity, how she's putting together her ska side and her noble woman side, how she's putting together her tomboy side and her feminine side, how she's like learning to um, be a part of a group and a family where she was alone for so much of her life. Like these are really big questions and I feel like she should spend more of her time on these like really big life questions that are things in one way or another most of us have asked. And I would like so much less of the like, am I good enough for Ellen? What about Zane? I don't know. Yeah, love triangles, I think, are no one's favorite thing. But teenage love triangles are especially harsh. And here is, this is my biggest criticism that really came across during this last reread. Ben and Ellen's relationship, while it has never been my favorite, it really fell apart for me on this reread. There is not very much screen time that supports the way that they say they feel about each other. They meet like twice, barely talk to each other. Vin is like, oh my God, I'm in love. And then they have like this big breakup, even though they were never together. Barely together. And they only talk to each other twice, but then they break up and it's very dramatic. And then they get back together and apparently they like really, really love each other. But like, do they even really know each other? Yeah. I mean, in the second book, Vin and Ellen or Ellen proposes to Vin yeah. and a year goes by. I mean, yeah. he, he proposes basically right after the events of the Lord Ruler's death and book one. Uh, and then we pick up in book two and Tindwell is berating Ellen as she does. And he's like, why haven't you married this girl? And he's like, I, I tried. I don't know what's going on with her. <laughs> and it's just like for a year what is happening like it just it doesn't line up so much yeah it doesn't line up at all and i think that that is maybe why the as you said the internal focus for vin would have been more interesting ways to explore doubt we're not saying that characters can't feel doubt or that they shouldn't feel doubt or that doubt is not um something that is good enough to build a story around it's that the way it manifests in Well of Ascension doesn't necessarily feel true to yeah, the characters. exactly. And it's kind of like if Vin is the type of person who, you know, makes snap decisions, follows her gut, she fell in love with this man, like she doesn't go back. She's decisive. She's in love with him. Done, you know. Or if she is done with him and wants to move on, then she'll move on. Right, like, exactly. It's it's when did she become a kind of waffling character? Yeah. Or, or a character that kind of moves back and forth and, and kind of can't make up her mind. And again, like this is something actually addressed in the text. She says, like, I'm a person of action. I feel uncomfortable because I'm, 
you know, being leashed or whatever by yes. Ellen, not able to take the action that I want to take. But then, like, that is where that qualm, that question should be addressed is like literal physical action, not in the relationship, which is where it comes out. Yeah. And so I think the focus of the love triangle, the step brothers both vying for then in their own way eventually reaches its only natural conclusion with then just being like zane you're real messed up man like you and you don't know anything about ellen or ellen and my relationship like sorry bro but i'm not gonna run away with you uh and then obviously they fight and spoiler he dies <laughs> <laughs> And Osur, or Tensoon, breaks the contract. Oh, there's a lot of big stuff at that. We'll come back to that, sorry. But there is just kind of a, yeah, we knew we were going to get here because yes. Zane was a weird character from the beginning and he was never going to be, like, obviously, we we could have done this much quicker. Yes, yeah, I think... Maybe don't cut out Zane altogether because he's such a cool ruin vehicle. And gives us a bunch of like what ruin does to characters. Yes. But it didn't need to be a love triangle. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, that's a way to take a like say you want to include a little bit of a love triangle romantic in your otherwise very action heavy political drama. Give that to a different character give it to ellen teenage boys feel lots of doubt especially when they are matched or romantically involved with someone who is clearly superior to them in many ways like okay he has a moment of doubt early on i don't know how to be king and then tinwell comes in and basically he gets a confidence booster and that carries him through the rest of the story and he basically just keeps becoming more and more Ellen, more and more confident, more and more the emperor that he eventually is. It would have made more sense for Ellen's conflict to be more surrounding, like you were saying, this insecurity of like, yeah. not only is he f- faced with a job that he is unprepared for in basically every sense, yes, being king. Um, wildly unqualified. Like, he is not yeah. going to be a good king. I mean, he's better than other choices. You sure. know, that's why he's king. But still, big life change, bro. Um, and then, like you were saying, he is also facing this woman, his partner, this person that he loves, is not who he thought she was, which he just found out, BT dubs. Yeah. Um, and is super powerful. And he's dealing with, like, discovering war and death for the first time. And, like, that could all be lots of interesting insecurities that are played with. I think those kind of relationship qualms should have been more focused in Ellen rather than Vin. There's almost a question of did the way that book one ended and trying to squeeze everything into one book then pigeonhole or um kind of trap brandon in the way that he's writing where okay ellen has to be involved in book two uh and he has to also grow very very quickly maybe unnaturally quickly to have as an important role as anyone else in the crew and in the empire as a whole like okay so he's going to become an emperor and a quasi emperor and he's going to try to do this but he can't really be an emperor as we said, he's unqualified. So then he has to 
rapidly grow and then he has to rapidly grow again and it becomes misborn at the end um and so there's a lot of difficulty in that presentation and the way that i think then a woman of action and decisiveness is shown as weak or confused um, and Ellen, who is a weaker and more confused individual, is shown as like rapidly growing into a very good yeah. ruler and eventually a very powerful Mistborn. Okay, that was that was way too much criticism. However, <laughs> let's pull out our favorite details, talk about them in a little bit more specific, not so much the big picture, but let's dive in and get some key points. Number one, Chandra religion i turned to tyler as i was reading and i was like oh my gosh we forgot a religion for our religions episode the chandra religion sort of like the terrace religion this is a religion that seems to know a lot that we don't necessarily get to hear about but for example or a sir or soon, but we all know who we're talking about. Um, even drops the names of the shards. He tells Vin, you're of ruin after all, while the Chandra are of preservation. And then he mentions that they have this entire theology about the father, aka the Lord Ruler. I just like, I want to hear all of their theology. I feel like that would be so interesting. Well, and we get a lot more of the Chandra. Like, this is one of the things that I think is the best setup. Like, we yes. were just very critical about how much time is wasted, but the time is also wasted because these things are being introduced in the background. We're given a lot of information. Yeah, and it's in breadcrumb form. It's not quite as in your face, but the Chandra become the most important things and Tensoon becomes one of the most important characters, not just in Era 1, but in Era 2 and we consider going forward as well. Uh, he is immensely important and every interaction that he has with Vin, including his near final one, when he goes against the contract to help her, even though he's technically Zane's servant, is just interesting like we we just get this completely sentient developed culture that has a very long memory similar to like a copper mind uh and the terrace like we see a lot of value in those kind of things that connect back to the before the lord ruler or early days of the lord ruler and that's introduced through the chandra and then gets a big payoff in book three i think one of the other things that is immensely clear on the reread is how much is set up, how much of the end game is set up while book two is being written. Definitely. Like Zay's ascension, his entire storyline becoming harmony or harmony-like figure needed to be known during the writing of book two. Just has to be. It's the only way it makes sense. Because it's all so... Be uh, there are times when the epigraphs match the chapter that's being written, and then you realize yes. that the chapter that was being written is actually going to tell you something important in book three. And so there is just so much going on that is it's evident 
that the details of book three were already known and you can look at things like Duralumin and the discovery of how a metal can boost another metal and then how that sets up aluminum uh, in the third book and how a metal can take away. You have the references that Spook drops and his own struggles of kind of tin abuse or tin addiction, um, tin overflaring, however you want to phrase it. He, that's already happening in book two, hugely important and gets a lot of you know Spook-specific time in book three. The weakness of the Chandra um, and the way that they are cousins of the Coloss, um, we don't even get the fact that they're spiked. We don't. That's not revealed until book three. We just know that they are similar and that they can both be overtaken by emotional allomancy. It's just a book of breadcrumbs. That's basically what it is. And one gigantic siege and battle fight. <laughs> <laughs> like breadcrumbs and a siege battle. That yeah, is what book two is. Pretty much. That's a great description. Going back to what we were saying for book one, one, all these ways that like preservation and ruin are misunderstood continues in book two. I'm thinking specifically of the page rips. Yeah. On the notes, we might think like, oh, that was ruin trying to mess with them. But it's preservation, like trying, trying to, to send help them, them a message, trying to help them. And it's just horribly, horribly misunderstood. I mean, at every moment, preservation is wildly misunderstood it's he, so sad he appears as uh, the mist shadow yeah, the mist spirit yeah the spirit that's following vin that's showing up to ellen uh that's trying to help every character in every way and we know now because of mistborn secret history uh that fuzz preservation is also struggling at this point to hold everything together like he has a That's personality what makes it even I know. worse when you imagine fuzz like behind all of this just like tearing his hair out like i'm trying to help them and like they just nobody's don't get listening it. yeah <laughs> it is one of the hardest things to understand maybe even more than understanding how all the metals uh work in unison <laughs> in the midst of a fight but the what is real what is accurate what can we trust in this book is very difficult and if you give too yes. much and brandon convinces you every time he just he leads you like he's just got honey and it you're just a such following masterful writing yeah because we know what happened on the last one like alendi is not the lord ruler it's Rashek. it was a trick and then in the next book, you tricked me again, Brandon. You, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. This is reread number three or four, and you still tricked There's me. Just like I'm still like, man, what is going on with this miss spirit? Why is Ruin so mean? <laughs> and I'm just like, wait, no, it's wait, it's not Ruin. <laughs> and I think that another aspect of that, just like um, emotional response to this book, especially knowing some things, is just trying to get the characters in the book to like know what you now know <laughs> right and like they they see the things like they see the clues and they just completely misinterpreted them like there's one point where 
Sezed and I think he's with Tindwell by this point. They're studying and Sezed turns to her and he's like, I'm noticing this, you know, real inconsistency in in the prophecies and this man, Quan, who was like, you know, very logical, this like learned man, has great rational arguments for things. Like in this one part, he's just really like contradicting himself. Like this doesn't really make sense. And Seiza just like reads way too much into it and is like, do you think he's trying to imply something with his inconsistency and his arguments? Is this like reflecting something deeper? And it's like, no, man, mm-hmm. it's because Ruin is changing it. There's a point. That's why. Yeah. And it's such a hard thing to <laughs> have in mind the first time you read it. Oh, 100%. And it's so funny. Like, I wonder if there are any of Brandon's um, writing excuses podcasts or any of the lessons that he has given that are about this. Like, how do you make a reader trust you so that you can abuse their trust <laughs> in an interesting way? And in, yeah, in a like, really good way. Yeah, exactly. It's just, a, it's such an interesting thing about just like, he's definitely lying to us in that he wants us to think one thing and really something else is true. Um, But he's like a magician who is using misdirection. It is so hard to set up something like this, too, and, like, not leave any cracks, you know? Like, all of the cracks are purposeful and also misdirects. Like, there are no just cracks. And on that note, and maybe in direct contrast to what we said about the relationship between Vin and Alan, the relationship between Tindwell and... Zazed or Zased is fantastic and it's going on at the exact same time as like a mirror to Ellen and Vin's relationship with two characters who have wildly different experiences are much much older are at different positions in their own life are basically both at the end you know Zazed because he feels he is not a man uh, because he's a eunuch. And Tinwell has already lived a life of uh, forced reproduction. And she's had many, many children. I think she said she had 11 or 15 daughters. And so that was only yeah. half of the the likely children that she did have. So that was part of her imprisonment, her her torture, but also the sacrifice that she gave. And so they're just on the other side of the coin from what feels like maybe a little bit of childish teenage angst. Totally. You have they have this like comfortable union of like minds and souls and like shared interest, but also differences, right? Like enough differences to keep it spicy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know it was spicy. Uh <laughs> I feel like the moment in the uh the solo movie when L three a robot uh, is referencing a possible relationship with Lando Calrissian, a man. And one of the characters is just like, how How would that even work? And L3 just responds, oh, it works. <laughs> Tindwell and Zays, it works. That's what uh, is going to then, of course, cause so much heartbreak Aww. as the story unfolds because you get... Zazed, who is pushing himself, um, 
obviously dealing with doubt because that's like a theme that everyone's dealing with, but he believes his job as a terrorist is to spread religions around the now free Rashar. He has to go back to help his friends because he gets key information. He grows in his relationship with Tindwell to the point where it's easy to say that they are in love and it's deep and it's real. Mm -hmm. And while it may not have taken much time, like time is against them. But they've known each other for their entire lives. Like they've just been waiting for the opportunity that presents itself in this book. You know? Yeah. The way that he like talks about her and reminisces Mm -hmm. about her. Like you can tell that he always admired her and they just never had the chance and you know he was holding himself back and it's such a beautiful simple relationship when like their favorite thing is just staying up late and reading together and having those moments lit by the fire when you just like put your hand on someone else's and feel comfort like it's so beautiful and then the end of the book when they are the city is under siege zays goes to one gate tindwell goes to the other and zays gives literally his whole life this didn't really make sense to me on the first read through um but becomes more apparent like what he is as a ferrucamist is someone who can dump part of his life into metals and his speed his vision, his health, his X, Y, Z, his strength. Like we know how this works, but he puts that into metal to be used up again at a different time. And he uses every single bit of life force, energy, investiture that he has ever stored up in that final battle when he is just fighting on top of that wall as Colossus. Yeah, exactly. Years and years of weight and strength and health. And he has to do it in reverse. So like he he put in time of just like months of not being able to see well. Yeah. So that he could have better vision in this one moment. An end neutral investiture. Like he he's not getting something for nothing. Yeah. He yeah. had to give up something. And he puts it all on the line. You know, he he plays all four quarters. Like he doesn't hold anything back. And his gate is like routinely remarked as like it's the only one that's still holding. They've broken through everywhere else. All is lost except for Zazed. There's ska that are around his gate and the soldiers are like fighting to save these people who are very clearly just like waiting for a miracle. And they're like, it's okay. They call him the, the Holy First Witness, but it's okay. Holy First Witness. Vin will return. She will save us. And he's just like, I got to do it. I got to throw the, everything on my shoulders and put everything that I have to save these people and he literally gives his entire life's work. And then Vin shows up and she saves the day as much as she does. And Zazed walks through the city and finds Tendwell's body. And there's just so much loss that becomes apparent so quickly. It's like, oh, this is what war actually is or this is what 
a deep, dark struggle exist in these types of worlds. And I think that something I admire Brandon's writing for is that he doesn't shrink from these types of like really difficult and like true to life uh, scenarios where I feel like a lot of writers may think that if they're going to put their readers through all of this, you know, difficulty and heartbreak that they need to ease up a little bit on the sorrow. But Brandon kind of always takes it a step further than you think he's going to. You know, you go through all of the final empire thinking that it's going to be really difficult. We might, you know, take a couple losses, but there's no way you expect Kelsier to die. Yeah. You know, like you have to give up Kelsier and you're just like, he always exceeds your expectations in that way. Um, And then manages to do it with a background of like so much hope and care and loveliness as well so that it's not completely overwhelming. And then at the same time, it is overwhelming. Like this story or this path that Zay's on, it breaks him right here and the third book is basically about how he has lost everything he's lost his faith he gave it all and he got nothing really to show for it or his feeling is that he got nothing to show for it i mean it it didn't solve the problem exactly right like Like, you keep thinking throughout these books like okay just kill the lord ruler then everything will be great okay just get through the siege then everything will be great and you keep giving everything and Still not solving your problem. And this is the other thing about being a brave writer. Book two, while they don't know it as much as they will come to realize it, it ends with them failing horrifically. Just like the worst possible decisions. I mean, we were joking earlier about how Fuzz was trying to help them so much. Uh, He was trying to help them because ruin is the thing that wins at the end of this yeah like every single time ruin made a move it worked out for him 100 percent. and every time preservation tried to do anything to stop it 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 failed failed. (laughs) and the humans and zazed and vin and ellen and kelsier they were all just being played by ruin i mean legitimate as uh tensoon said like y'all are of ruin and you're working for him. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like very clear that's what happens. It's like book one and book two are about how a bunch of humans got manipulated by a god to release an all-powerful destructive force. <laughs> like that's where we're at at the end of book two. Happy times. Woohoo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go out and spread the message, people. Mistborn. It's a real fun time. Yeah. Big banger. <laughs> um. To sort of zoom in a little bit, that was a lot of, uh, you know, big picture discussion. I have just a couple sort of little things that I noticed throughout my read. One thing that really stood out to me is this recurring theme of, like, age differences in relationships, which I didn't necessarily notice the first time and then got real weird um, during this read. First of all, I didn't realize that Ellen and Vin have such a big age difference in between them. I thought they were, like, 16 and 18, but they're, like, 25 and 16. Yeah, he's, like, supposed... I think he gets... 
age differently at different points or at least suggested age is in the different. first book he's described as being like in his early 20s yeah and then years go by over this story yeah so he's i think like something like 25 by the the final events and Vin never gets to her 20s or she's no. like 21 at the very maybe? end. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But so that was one thing that I was like, ooh, that's a little weird. Yeah, but it would be okay if that wasn't the only example. Exactly. But there's then, a lot. <laughs> and then in book two, they start this weird thing, which was not in book one at all like not reference not not hidden like nothing all of a sudden there's this like question that's brought up several times of Vin's relationship with Kelsier yeah there's a scene where multiple people in the crew yeah are basically accusing Vin of, of being, like being horny in love with him or yeah being in, I mean I thought it was more just like oh you sure you didn't want some of that Kelsier uh like I don't think any of them imagined they had a relationship, but they were clearly saying that Vin was sexually interested in Kelsier. And, Ellen, and she shuts it down. She clearly oh, shuts it down. She's like, you don't know what you're talking She's about. Like, He's a he father. He was my father. Yeah, exactly. And so she it's not um it's not, not equally apparent, but just like, where did the idea come from? Yeah. And Ellen has a whole, you know, hang up about Vin being into Kelsier, which even after she makes that comment, he's still kind of like, I don't know. Kelsier was pretty cool, which is just the whole thing is just really weird and uncomfortable. And again, was not previously brought up at all. And then you have Breeze and Aurienne or Aurienne, which again, I was on my first couple of reads. I thought Aurienne was like, Maybe, you know, mid-20s and Breeze was, like, in his 40s, which still weird, but, like, all right, at least she's an adult. But then this time around, I noticed she's, like, described as being a teenager. She's, like, 16 to 18, like, Vin's age. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think if Vin is right around in Well of Ascension, 17 or 18, Ariane is supposed to be maybe a year or two older. Yeah. And so... That is gross. (laughs) And it's the whole time remarked upon as one of the reasons why uh, Breeze has a hang up about the relationship, like starting the relationship, taking the relationship to the next level, marrying Ariane, all things Breeze does not want to do because he says that it's weird. Ariane is also the instigator, we know, of this relationship uh, because not so much that she was well i don't know about all of her desires but her main <laughs> desire was to manipulate breeze because he was an amazing soother yeah and she wanted to kind of take on a challenge um, Yeah, and so saying nothing about their sexual relationship at all there's just very clear power dynamics that are obviously part of the Mistborn series that come to deal with age differences, with power differences, with Alamancers and Ska and Nobles and Ska. So there's a lot of differences and talks about the inappropriateness, the abuse of those types of power differences in personal relationships. I think the sort of final 
moral conclusion of portraying these relationships could have been like more explicitly stated it's never really implied that like we think this is a bad thing because noblemen are like taking young ska girls or anything like that well yeah it's clearly bad when someone like straff is doing it but then it's kind of okay when someone like breeze is doing it because we know breeze and we like breeze but is it okay yeah but that's and it's not really made 100% 100% clear in like every instance. Like how you're instance. supposed to feel about it as a reader. And so my take, what I kind of feel about this situation is that it's one of the things that was thought about or approached when you're building the world itself and then you don't necessarily develop it a whole bunch. So Brandon maybe didn't want to make like a meta commentary on what is good or bad. He just had in his mind like, okay, I want a late middle ages to maybe semi early industrial period time frame. And in our own world at that time, there were a lot of weird uh, relationships when it came to age and it was not unusual. I mean, it is unusual, but it was not (laughs) uncommon for things like, nobles to be married off when they were young or matched up when they were young for slaves or indentured servants to be abused and sexually manipulated by the people that had more power over them so like it's just kind of like there in the background of a lot of this story and i just say it's a product of the time like that's just what scadriel was at this time is just across the board there's a lot of this going on Uh, And there's not a lot of meta commentary. It's just there in the background. Another little thing that I wanted to pull out of this book is the really beautiful, delicate um, drawing and deepening of Breeze's character in specific in this book. There is just a gorgeous uh, passage and the very beginning of one of the chapters where Breeze is sitting in uh, a warehouse filled with ska who are, you know, cold and without food and refugees. And he's soothing them. And we get this like insight into his character and also this really nice, nuanced sort of explanation of the emotional powers as uh similar to things that we do in our lives anyway yeah. the the subtle ways that we try to manipulate how the people around us react to us or how they feel you know whether that's wearing something specific or the tone of voice that we use or like these little tools that we all have at our disposal he sees his power in much the same way and most of the time he's using it for good and for love and like to care for the people around him by the third book it's clearly stated that breeze is not the same person he was when he was drafted by like he kind of was a little bit of a jerk a little bit of a a jackass when kelsier picked him for the crew he mainly wanted to do it because of the challenge not because of anything about helping ska or you know bringing it was like money is a possibility and i'm cocky and I want a challenge. Um, and he has a clear transformation, and we see that transformation play out. I think 
one of my favorite things about exploring Breeze is learning how, as you said, his power is instinctual and ever-present. He can no more turn it off than you could tell someone uh, with a beautiful smile, like, don't have your smile affect people in any way. Yeah. Like, it's just, if someone has a great smile and they smile at you, you're going to be like, dang, <laughs> oh, that's a nice smile. And you just feel the things that you feel because of it. He makes this interesting comparison, too, between himself and Tindwell, And he remarks on the effect that Tindwell has had on Ellen and how much she has changed the way that Ellen feels. And she's done it, you know, without Alamancy, but it's this really interesting comparison between a powered person and a person she has powers but she's not using them for this specific thing um, and how those things are similar I love the concept that he has one ability soothing and in order to help people feel a certain way there's so much nuance and yeah like he can only make things go down so if you want someone to be happy you don't touch their happiness at all or you want someone to be brave you yeah, want ellen you to, to stand up a little straighter yeah exactly everything's about the reverse and you have to know what they are feeling and that's kind of yeah he that is was a, another great um things that i think he brings up in this passage is that it's not just about your power it's about how observant yes. you can be of the people around you like you have to use your regular human senses you have to become sensitive to the people around you and empathic in order to have the correct touch with your power yeah in many ways breeze is shown to be a empath compared to you know kelsier's sociopath He's someone who feels and has to be aware and cognizant of all of the emotions around him. And so it's really impressive to see his growth over time uh, and his character evolve. He also gives this description of his soothing that's like sort of similar to what people talk about when they talk about meditation and how when he like soothes away the big things on like the surface of people there are other things underneath so like he's not creating emotions he's just moving some things aside so that people can like more clearly see the truth of what is under all of that like chaos and all of those other thoughts okay what is our cosmere connection from well of ascension not too surprising, I would say, the shards, ruin and preservation. It really is like our first clear example of the way that their power works, some of their limitations, even if we don't know that that's what's happening. But like looking back now and rereading now, you learn a lot about the way that preservation is trying to operate. If you understand that Zane is constantly being manipulated through a hemallergic spike and the voice that he hears inside his head is not his own insanity but is in fact ruin, all of which are made very clear to the person who understands that, but I mean, you would never know. I mean, he even calls it the voice of God. Yes, the voice of God. And since there are two gods on this planet, <laughs> it's the one that talks to people with metal spikes. Uh, like, it's all there. But on the first read-through, I had no idea. Yeah. And it's even, I mean, for Zane, 
When he dies, the last thing that he says, or excuse me, the last thing that Ruin says to Zane is, the funny thing is, Zane, you were never crazy. Because I planned all of this. Like, that's the, the message of the story is like, you were my tool. I used you. Thanks. Well, and again, it's just like, he's not crazy. He is correct. God is talking to him. Telling like, him to kill certain yeah. people. And like, everything is that seems like character building, seems like world building, seems like XYZ is really ABC, is really setting up something in the greater Cosmere. And it's fascinating to reread Well of Ascension because I didn't pick up on any of this the first time around. I did not... Other than there's a mystery yeah, and I want to solve it. Yeah, you get to the end and you're like, wait, what? Yeah, exactly. It's just a wild ride, but you're you're so much more focused on the characters than you are on the Cosmere. And, and there's so much happening in the plot. Of course. like it's. I mean, there's interesting stuff going on. It makes sense. But looking back on it now, this is a, as I said before, a book about breadcrumbs. Uh, and it's just a bunch of breadcrumbs that are set up and it's really interesting to reread. I would strongly suggest that if you haven't done a reread and you are willing to get through maybe some of the harder aspects of this book uh, that you seriously consider giving Well of Ascension a nice good old read through just to get the good parts. How about Hoyd sightings? There is one, but it's even less so uh, than in The Final Empire. Uh, there's a na unnamed moment when Ellen is talking to an old man, and he's mentioning something about an attack on Terrace. That old man is actually Hoyd. We only know that uh, because of a word of Brandon, and that word of Brandon also said that Hoyd overhears a conversation and takes action upon it, specifically about the Well of Ascension and like where it's located. So he's there, but does not really have any big impact on the story. However, Hoyt sighting confirmed. All right, this was already a lot of misborn discussion. So we're gonna talk about book number three in our next podcast. So you have two weeks from the day that this is launched to finish up your Hero of Ages read. If you're following along. If not, just... If not, just read your own read. Yeah, read your own read. Listen your own listen because this pod's <laughs> going to be here and you can check it out any time. If you have thoughts about our thoughts, hit us up. Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, we're everywhere. Join the Facebook group. You can talk to everyone else on there who is doing a reread. Check in. See if anyone caught the things that you're catching. State of the Sanderson is out. You can read that. Oh, man. It is really exciting. If you want a look forward to what is going to happen on the book schedule, on TV shows, video there games, board games. There are nine parts this is nine that are part, outlined yeah. because it's Brandon Sanderson. There's a bunch out there and we are super excited 2020 is looking to be a great year because we got a lot of cosmere brooke can you take us away until next time life before death strength before weakness journey before destination <laughs> <laughs>